Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for your questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Michelle, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program, Living with Metastatic Breast Cancer. And I do want to remind all of you that um, on October 13th, um, it is Metastatic um, Breast Cancer Awareness Day, and we always do this program a little bit before it just to highlight this for all of you and to remind all of you about um, October 13th as well. So um, very important that we do this during, uh, this, uh, during the month of October. Um, and today's program is a uh, collaborative effort with many other organizations, both cancer organizations and specifically breast cancer organizations. And really, um, because of that collaboration and your interest in the program today, we have so many of you on the call today. There are over 370 participants on the call today, so there's a lot of you on the call. You come from all different parts of the United States, from both rural, urban, and suburban areas. And we also have a number of international participants. I'm just going to mention the countries, Australia, Canada, Croatia, India, Iraq, Israel, Laos, Pakistan, Philippines, South Africa, Turkey, United Arab Emirates, the United Kingdom, Venezuela, and Venezuela. So really, uh, really quite a very large group of people on the call today and from all different parts of the world. Um, today's program is supported by AbbVie, Pfizer, an educational grant from Daiichi Sankyo, Inc., and a grant from Genentech. And I really want to thank them for their support of today's program. Now, before we actually um, start with our speakers, which will be starting in just a moment, um, I do want to um, actually uh, ask you um, two questions to start. They're just to get a sense of um, your knowledge of the, in this area, So, and they're yes, no. So I'm going to read the question, and then you'll see the question, those of you who are live streaming the program, and if you could just um, vote. So the first question is, I know all the new treatment approaches for metastatic breast cancer. It's either yes or no. And then there's a second question, and the second question is, I know exactly how to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments. And again, yes or no. Okay, I want to thank you very much for participating in this brief polling, and now we're going to move on um, and to introduce our first speaker. We are very uh, lucky and gifted today to have such wonderful speakers, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker, Dr. Julie Grelo. Dr. Grelo is the Jill Bennett Endowed Professorship in Breast Cancer. She's Director of Breast Medical Oncology, University of Washington School of Medicine, Director of Breast Medical Oncology, Seattle Cancer Care Alliance. And Dr. Grelo is going to really set the tone for today's program. She's going to present an overview of metastatic breast cancer in the context of COVID-19, diagnostic testing and technologies, including biomarkers and genomics, why they are important, and new treatment approaches. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Grelo. 
Thank you, Carolyn, and uh, my welcome to all of you listening in on this program from around the world. I'm here in, in Seattle, Washington. So one note about metastatic breast cancer in the context of COVID-19. As we get started, we'll have more opportunity to discuss this later in the program. But I think that the keys that we've learned, and I'm looking at my own institution, what I've seen others do, is the first thing we need is to keep the clinic safe. Um, we need to protect our metastatic cancer patients from being in contact with COVID, and that means keeping COVID out of the clinic. So masks, distancing, keeping patients home if they have symptoms, providing easy access to evaluation and COVID testing have been key. Um, we also, at our site, created an, an acute care clinic um, that's available after hours on weekends so that our patients could stay out of emergency rooms where lots of sick patients, some with COVID, would be, so to try to reduce exposures that way. We did look at whether there were some opportunities uh, for more oral administration of chemo when appropriate, switching from intravenous and the requirement for visits uh, to the infusion room to oral. We looked in some cases at whether we could extend treatment intervals in metastatic breast cancer. We didn't do that a lot, but maybe some for some of the bone-targeted agents that help reduce some of the symptoms of uh, bone metastases could be pushed out. And in a few of my patients, we looked at some drug holidays. Patients who had been doing well for years and years on the same therapy, could we give them a three-month break uh, to see if the, if the cancer was still under control? So those were some of our strategies, and we'll hear more uh, a little bit later. So I was asked to talk about diagnostic testing and technologies and why they're important. And the reason they're important is because breast cancer is just not one disease anymore. Back decades ago, we treated all breast cancers the same. Now we're more and more subtyping breast cancers and finding that if we look at the proteins and we look at the genes that are involved with cancers, that they're virtually all different if we look hard enough. The major subsets are still determined by whether the tumor expresses the estrogen receptor or the, the HER2 receptor, but we're dividing those even more and more. Um, it's really important in metastatic breast cancer that we um, don't just evaluate the cancer when you were originally diagnosed, when it was in the breast, but if it's possible to do a biopsy of the tumor at the time of uh, metastatic recurrence because there's a reasonable likelihood that some features have changed. And then over the time course of uh, the treatment of metastatic disease, after a tumor has been exposed to several different treatments, uh, there may be further changes in the genes and the proteins. And so kind of the serially testing over time in the course of metastatic disease can show changes that might impact um, our treatment options. So metastatic biopsies are more important than ever. We have the classic biopsies of the tumor itself by putting a needle into the liver or the lung or the bone or wherever the cancer may be. And more and more we're interested in what we're calling liquid biopsies, which is drawing blood, that's the liquid, and seeing if we can find features of the tumor, whether it's whole intact tumor cells or DNA or RNA that's floating around that can help tell us what's going on. And in addition to looking at the estrogen and progesterone receptor and HER2, 
We're now looking for things in subsets of breast cancer, such as something called PDL1 testing in triple negative breast cancer to see if immune therapy might be helpful. Even some uh, triple negatives were looking at androgen receptors because even though we associate those more with prostate cancer, um, we uh, do find that uh, some subset of triple negative might express androgen receptors, even though they don't express estrogen and progesterone receptors, and so some prostate cancer drugs might work. And at the gene level, we are looking at, um, for example, a mutation in a pathway called PIK3CA or PI3 kinase um, because we have a drug approved there in that pathway, and it doesn't work if the tumor doesn't have a mutation there. We're looking for all kinds of things, and I hope um, this very brief overview has explained why diagnostic testing, biomarkers, and genomics are important. They really do impact what the best treatment options are for a given patient and a given cancer. So just a, a brief word on new treatment approaches. Um, estrogen receptor bre metastatic breast cancer. We thought lots of estrogen receptor targeted therapies that have been around for a long time. And what's new here is that we now have several targeted therapies, different pathways that are also involved in these estrogen receptor positive tumors that we can combine with endocrine therapy. So we've got, we give one therapy that's targeted to the estrogen receptor and another therapy that can be targeted for example, to the uh, mTOR pathway, that's Everolimus or Affinitor, another one that could target the, the PI3 kinase pathway, Elpelisib or Picre was just approved that pathway, and then the cell cycle inhibitors, the CDK4-6 inhibitors, um, Ibrantz, Kisqualia, and Verzenio, those are drugs that can be combined with anti-estrogen therapy to help overcome resistance, improve the response, prolong the response, and that's a very exciting area. Now, in HER2-positive breast cancer, we now have seven FDA-approved drugs uh, for metastatic HER2-positive breast cancer that target HER2, seven. And three of them were approved in the last year to year and a half, and that's really exciting. One of them is called trastuzumab deruxtecan, or NHER2. It's an antibody to HER2 that's tagged to a chemotherapy agent. So we now have two antibody drug conjugates for HER2, the first one being uh, TDM1 or CADSILA. Um, we have two oral HER2 agents one called tucatinib or tukisa, which pretty much just targets HER2, and another neratinib or Neurlinx, which targets HER1, HER2, HER4. And both of these are oral agents. Both have been recently FDA approved for metastatic uh, HER2-positive breast cancer with some really exciting results in HER2-positive brain results, particularly with the tucatinib. So moving on to triple negative breast cancer, this is a subtype of breast cancer that doesn't express estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor, or HER2 receptor. So we call it triple negative. And for years, the main treatment has just been chemotherapy. But now we've got some exciting new treatment options. Uh, just this year, we've had the approval of what we call an antibody drug conjugate for triple negative breast cancer now. We've had these antibodies targeted to HER2 that have chemo attached to them approved in HER2 positive breast cancer. Now we have one for triple negative. And um, the antibody binds 
to um, something called trope 2, which is found on most triple negative breast cancer, actually most breast cancer and even some other cancers, and then it's tagged to chemo. So the antibody gets into the cell, it's cleaved, and chemo is delivered inside the cancer cell. So the antibody drug conjugate that just got approved for triple negative breast cancer is called sazituzumab, gavitikan, or trotal-V. Um, we've also... Um, had immunotherapy approved in triple negative breast cancer, although I have to say this is a confusing area in sorting out which subset of triple negative breast cancer benefit from the combination of chemo plus one of these immunotherapy, what we call an immune checkpoint inhibitor, and which chemo agents are best to combine. So right now in the U.S., we have atezolizumab, which is also called tocentric, which is approved in early stage uh, I'm sorry, in first line, triple negative breast cancer, a subset of about 40% of triple negatives where the immune cells around the tumor express something called PDL1. one um, We've also got a very promising trial, but not yet approval for another drug um, uh, called pembrolizumab or Keytruda that's an immune checkpoint inhibitor. So, I hope I brought home the point that it's more and more important to understand the tumor, to understand the patient, to understand what's going on over time and what changes are happening so that we can best match the therapy with some exciting newly approved drugs and longer survival um, to the patient and the tumor. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Grelo. That was really outstanding and, and really set the tone for the whole program today. And uh, I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so, but thank you so much. Thanks. And our next speaker is Dr. Erica Mayer. Dr. Mayer is Senior Physician, Breast Oncology Center, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, Assistant Professor of Medicine, Harvard Medical School. And Dr. Mayer will be addressing uh, uh, clinical trials, how clinical trials improve your care, She'll discuss the importance of the management of side effects, symptoms, and pain. So it's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Mayer. Thank you so much. Uh, welcome, everyone. I'm really excited to be speaking with you today, and I'm calling in from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, Massachusetts. So as many of you may know, clinical trials are really the primary way that we can learn if an amazing discovery in the research lab or a promising new drug translates into a tool that can be effective and well-tolerated in a person who's being treated for breast cancer. Trials come in three primary stages, and you may be familiar with some of this. Stage one clinical trials are usually smaller trials that are designed to determine if a drug is safe and tolerable. These are typically what we call single-arm trials, so they do not have any randomization. Everybody gets the same treatment. Stage two trials, or phase two trials, um, are designed to look at whether a drug is active. These may be somewhat larger trials, they may have a larger number of people, and once in a while these trials are randomized, meaning that there's a flip of the coin decision to decide what kind of treatment somebody's going to get. If a therapy appears to be both safe and tolerable, the next question is, uh, is this therapy better than the current standard of care? and that gets looked at in phase three trials. These are typically very large trials. They are often run at multiple centers across a country or in multiple countries, and typically these are almost always randomized trials. So everybody um, has a flip of the coin decision. 
sometimes these trials may contain a placebo, but honestly, most breast cancer trials have no placebo and no blinding, meaning that everybody in the trial, both doctors and patients, know exactly what treatment that somebody is getting. And this is the standard structure for how new therapies and new drugs are developed. Now, tr the clinical trials in breast cancer were, were definitely affected by COVID, but luckily things are, are pretty much back to normal. Some clinical trials were temporarily closed earlier this year due to some of the, the cancer centers um, uh, closing or restricting a little bit who was coming in and out. However, many existing trials were maneuvered to help continue to provide care to patients but reduce any risks from exposures. For example, many of the, the clinical trial visits moved from in-person to telemedicine, which you're going to hear more about in just a moment. Um, sometimes we were able to ship drugs to patients instead of having to have them come in and pick up drugs. And if patients needed a blood draw, often that could be done closer to home remotely instead of coming in. At this point in time, at least uh, at many of the centers in the United States, most clinical trials are back online and research steams ahead. Now, much of our research is presented at big congresses or big meetings held around the world. Uh, several of these meetings have occurred since the, the pandemic began, and as you can imagine, the, these meetings, which often have tens of thousands of people, had to pivot and become virtual. But luckily, this has actually been very successful, and it's been a wonderful experience to come together with colleagues from around the world at these virtual meetings to share many of the research advances and, and talk about new directions in research. So I wanted to just go over some of the uh, exciting results that we've seen just in the past uh, few months or year, much of which Dr. Graylow has already touched on. And I think it's really important to remember that structure of breast cancer by the three main subtypes, triple negative, HER2 positive, hormone receptor positive, that really is how we all organize the disease in, in our minds and how we think about um, designing and structuring trials. Now, as you heard, for triple negative breast cancer, we have this exciting new drug, sazituzumab, an antibody drug conjugate. I really like to think about this like a smart bomb approach. It's very precisely directed towards the triple negative breast cancer cell to try to kill that cell and minimize any off-target toxicity or any other side effects that somebody may encounter. It's really exciting for triple negative because, as was mentioned, this has been a, a portion of bre breast cancer that's primarily treated with chemotherapy. And we think about the sazituzumab medicine as being something other than chemotherapy and something that is more targeted. Um, this drug was just approved in April 2020, so it's now available in clinics. And just a couple weeks ago, we had one of our big cancer meetings. This was the European breast cancer or European medical oncology meeting where a trial was presented where patients who received this new drug, sazituzumab, seem to be doing better in terms of better cancer control and even living longer than receiving some of the other therapies that, that are occasionally used. So we're really exciting to, excited to have this new drug. Additionally, as was mentioned, um, triple negative breast cancer that has the PDL1 marker on it, it, it becomes a candidate for immunotherapy. Immunotherapy has been a really exciting advance in oncology in general, um, and we, we've been grateful to have an immunotherapy drug available, at least for this subset of breast cancer. This is the drug atezolizumab. And we also heard at our, our meetings that um, the atezolizumab is quite helpful when used in combination with one of our chemotherapies, a drug called nabpaclitaxel. 
And it's possible that a second immunotherapy drug, pembrolizumab, may be making its way to the clinics at some point in time in the future. We certainly are hopeful for that. There's some really interesting studies using both of these types of medicines, sazituzumab as well as immunotherapy, not only in, in triple negative disease, but also in some of the other subsets of breast cancer or in combination with other therapies to try to help it work better. And these are many of the ongoing clinical trials right now. Now, a subset of triple negative breast cancer includes people who get breast cancer who have inherited BRCA1 or 2 gene mutations. Often these cancers can be triple negative or some of the other breast cancer subtypes. We already have a targeted medicine for this type of breast cancer, PARP inhibitors, and these are pill medicines specifically targeted for cancers that have a deficiency in BRCA1 or 2. We've seen some new data that has looked at whether these drugs may actually help people who have some other gene mutations other than BRCA1 or 2 or have some mutations in the cancer itself. I think this is really important and interesting data and um, supports exactly what Dr. Grelo was saying, that the more we investigate each person's tumor and do all the different analyses to understand it, perhaps the more treatment approaches we may have available. Now, for hormone receptor positive breast cancer, as you heard, the, the strategy has evolved from using primarily hormone medicines by themselves to trying to partner hormone medicines with targeted therapies. Um, the past few years have seen some really strong results from the category of medicine called CDK4-6 inhibitors. Three drugs there, palbociclib, abemocyclib, and ribocyclib, all pill medicines. And these are drugs that can help control cancer longer and help people live longer. There's been a lot of work looking at what do we do after CDK4-6 inhibitors with the drug alpalisib, the PI3 kinase inhibitor that was mentioned, being an important drug for people whose cancers are found to have that mutation, PIK3CA. At the recent cancer meetings in, in Europe just two weeks ago, we did see some updated data from uh, the trial that led to the approval of alpalisib that shows that people who are receiving it are doing better in terms of cancer control and maybe even living longer with the use of this therapy. So we're very excited about this treatment. And um, again, it, it requires knowing the status of the cancer's mutation, either looking at the tumor or looking at the blood. And so this is part of how we want to be monitoring uh, someone's breast cancer, both at, at a moment in time, but also over time. Um, there are many really interesting agents that are in the pipeline for hormone receptor positive breast cancer. One category I'm particularly excited about is a group of agents called SIRDs. These are pill medicines that are designed to help get rid of the estrogen receptor in the hormone receptor positive breast cancer cell. They're very similar to an existing agent called fulvestrant or Faslodex, which is an injection medicine, but these medicines are pills, so it's easier for somebody to take and it may actually work better than the existing drug. There are many trials going on now looking at this category of SIRDs, and I'm really hopeful that, that these drugs will emerge as a new treatment that's available for patients. And then the HER2-positive breast cancer space has really been an amazing place for targeted therapies. As Dr. Grelo said, seven medications that are available now, targeted medicines for HER2-positive disease. I just want to um, uh, state again that one of these medicines, trastuzumab darex-tecan, was approved in December 2019. That's uh, the targeted approach. Um, that Again, it's that smart bomb approach, what we call antibody drug conjugate. 
and the second drug, tucatinib, which is an oral anti-HER2 medicine, approved in April 2020. Now, that other drug for triple negative, sazituzumab, was approved in April 2020. This means that at, at the height of the pandemic, at least in the East Coast, we had two new drugs approved for breast cancer in the midst of all that. I really took such great hope from that, knowing that despite what's going on in the world, research pushes on and progress pushes on, and we hope that that's going to absolutely continue. I would also point out uh, that the ducatinib is especially important for people who might have HER2-positive breast cancer that gets into the brain, as this drug can be quite active in that situation, which is really fantastic to see. So everything I've mentioned, all these advances are really all due to clinical trials. We are so grateful to the thousands of patient volunteers who have participated in these trials that have led to drug discovery. Every single clinical trial has the potential to lead to an important outcome that might be helpful for a particular person or the population in general. Being on a trial can offer exposure to new agents, new therapeutic strategies before they've become standard of care. And, of course, anything that we learn from the trials that helps to advance therapy are going to help future people, men and women, who are fighting this disease. So, in general, we always strongly encourage people who are being treated for metastatic breast cancer to discuss trial enrollment with their provider and definitely consider if it's an option. Finally, I just want to touch on the importance of managing side effects. So a major goal in the management of metastatic breast cancer, which is essentially equivalent to the goal of prolonging survival, is to manage symptoms and side effects from the disease and from the treatment and maximize quality of life. There are many, many tools to help with managing symptoms, and this includes not only regular medicines, such as medicines that a doctor might give, but also many complementary approaches, for example, acupuncture, massage, or some interventional approaches. Now, not only does symptom management make a big difference in how people feel day-to-day, it actually may help people do better. There's some very interesting research that has looked at collecting data electronically on how people feel every day and shows that with this type of communication, it can help reduce somebody needing to go to urgent care or needing to go to the emergency room and may actually help someone live longer. So good communication is really key. It's very important to know how to reach your provider's office, what's the best way to reach them, when to reach them, should you use phone, should you use email. These are important questions to ask when you go to your doctor's office. And also to make sure that you understand when is a good time to come in and get seen in person, and when can you use virtual visits, which are now a a tool that we have available. So good bi-directional communication is really key to optimize how somebody is feeling and really may help how they do overall. So I'm going to close there. I'll turn it back to Carolyn. And again, I thank you so much for joining the call today. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Mayo. That was really outstanding. And honestly, the the, the whole framework that you have uh, put together, and then of course concluding with the importance of management of side effects and symptoms is so important. Um, uh, and so the, this is really wonderful. Thank you so much. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. So thank you. And our next speaker, is Dr. Elizabeth Cathcart-Rake, and Dr. Cathcart-Rake is staff physician, hematology oncology, St. Luke's Cancer Institute, St. Luke's Cancer Specialist in Breast Cancer. And Dr. Cathcart-Rake will be addressing the increasing role of telehealth, telemedicine appointments to decrease your exposure to COVID-19, specific guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments to get the most out of each of your appointments, and also communicating with the healthcare team about quality of life, concerns, and the context of COVID-19. 
It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Cathcart Rake. Well, thank you so much for the for the introduction, and um, I'm just very thankful to be able to be a part of this really great program. So, um, Dr. Mayer had a very nice introduction to to my segment, which is telehealth, um, which has just become so increasingly important as we are trying to limit everyone's exposure to COVID-19 and keep everyone safe and the, the clinic safe. Um, and, and so now we do have a lot of processes in place for video visits that may be different from institution to institution, but frequently this is embedded in the electronic medical record and we can complete many elements of a traditional visit now over video or over phone. Um, and this has been, um, you know, there's certainly um, pros and cons of, of telehealth, but one um, big silver lining I've seen to all this is that I do feel like um, we can really serve our rural patients or patients who have a lot of difficulty coming in for clinic um, visits more frequently is this just allows us another way to reach them a little bit more frequently um, or do second opinions and that kind of thing too. And so it just allows for um, more frequent check-ins uh, for, for folks who need it. Now, telehealth visits are different than in-person visits, and there are some visits that are much more appropriate for in-person visits than telehealth or vice versa. I think telehealth can be really a great tool um, if you have questions about a side effect of a medication or um, need just some changes in your pain medicine um, or, you know, have a visit to just discuss what to expect from a chemotherapy or a targeted therapy, um, those kind of chemo or targeted therapy teaches. But everybody is different in terms of whether or not telehealth is appropriate for them. And so I think it's so important to have a good discussion um, with your provider, with your healthcare team, and with your family, and, and think for yourself what makes the most sense. I think the, the a majority of, of um, my patients prefer to talk in person about scan results, for instance. We can review images together in detail, and that in-person contact can be a really important part of our of our communication. However, I do have some other patients who have really large families and they're really supportive and that's a really important part of their care is to have their families be a part of, of those difficult discussions and our visitor policy unfortunately can preclude some of this. And so um, video visits sometimes allow for the full support network to be there. Um, and so, you know, sometimes in those cases, actually, we do some of these big, um, bigger discussions about results all together on a telehealth visit for that reason. Um, so I think that's very much a personal decision and one that you should um, talk, you know, talk with your family and your doctor about um, as to whether or not those visits are appropriate for telehealth. Um, and then, so when you're planning on a telehealth visit, I think um, the first thing is just being clear um, with your provider about as to the reason if you're initiating the visit. Um, just because if you have a new um, lump or bump or if you're feeling really dizzy, those are visits that are certainly better done in person, you know, for for instance, dizziness, you know, your vital signs are going to be really important and it may be important for you to be seen in clinic and get some fluids or for a lump or bump, gosh, that's something that's really a physical exam is needed. Now, if you, there's ever any question, you can always start with a telehealth visit or a phone call and talk with your provider about where to go from there. 
Um, other things that are helpful for a telehealth visit, um, it's always helpful if, if you have equipment at home to check your vital signs, whether or not telehealth is a, is a capability, just to, just to be able to, to share with your provider if those vital signs have been normal and certainly any abnormalities or, or reasons to, to talk with them sooner. Um, but that can just really help inform a visit um, uh, as, far as, as far as how you're feeling and kind of supplement that information. Um, I, uh, like other visits with telehealth, it's helpful to write down um, your most important questions and concerns and to order these in order of importance. Um, it may take additional visits to cover if you have a lot of questions, but it helps to have a clear agenda, especially as sometimes these telehealth visits are blocked a little bit shorter amounts of time. Um, so certainly write those things down, order them, and then kind of create an agenda with your with your provider before you get going to make sure you're on the same page about what you want to want to cover during that visit. Um, and then the, the final thing is is um, is the logistical steps. You know, making making sure that you're in a place where your internet works and that you're comfortable and that you're at a quiet area of the house. I, um, it's tough to have a tele telehealth visit when somebody's at work. And um, while I know that's sometimes a need needed thing, I think it's better to to be in a, a situation where you can really have a, a detailed discussion if, it, if that's needed. Um, and then to make sure that you have the folks around you that um, that you you want to to be involved in your care, um, you know it, it um, may be helpful to have a significant other, the support person there, um, and it may be less helpful to have uh, someone else that, that's in your house there. And so, just trying to create an environment that's best for you. Um, now, um, to to transition, one of my one of my biggest concerns as an oncologist in the in the context of COVID nineteen has been um, the the um, quality of life of my patients in the in the midst of all this, and um, I think a lot of a lot of uh, people with cancer and especially metastatic cancer are experiencing a lot of isolation um, amid COVID nineteen. Um, it's certainly clear that people with um, a history of cancer on immunosuppressive treatments are higher risk for infections, and you know our our primary interest is keeping you safe. Um, and healthy, but your mental health is also extremely important to all of us. And so I can't underscore enough the importance of, of talking with your team about your mental health. Um, gosh, if you're feeling down or anxious, you are not alone, although it may certainly feel that way. Um, we our, our cancer center has a a wonderful psychological um, group. Um, we also still are doing support groups virtually, um, and we're doing a lot of telehealth even in, uh, among those groups to reduce exposure. And so um, don't think that, gosh, because of COVID, I can't get, you know, um, health and, and support for my mental health. We absolutely can do that and can do that virtually. Um, you know, another quality of life of life concern, unfortunately, is that, with um, loss of loss of jobs, I know there are people struggling with um, food and housing. Please don't hesitate to reach out to your team. I've um, I know my my social worker has been working overtime trying to help with with concerns like this, and there are a number of different grants out there where we really can help help people with those kinds of concerns. Um, one thing in terms of quality of life, I get a lot of questions about is 
whether or not to do certain things in the midst of COVID, you know, whether or not to travel, whether or not to go to a family gathering and those kinds of things. And I think those are really best best discussed on an individual basis with your provider in the context of um, of the reward in terms of your mental health with that versus the risk of infection and just trying to minimize that risk and finding those things that are going to provide you the, the, the best benefit. And that's just something just keep, keep thinking about and keep discussing because we certainly want to support your quality of life while also keeping you safe. And we can help you weigh those things on an individual basis. And so um, I think communication is paramount in the midst of this time where, um, where we can't have those personal, personal connections and personal meetings as, as well. Um, so with that, I, I'll conclude. Happy, happy to um, talk anymore if anyone has questions, and greatly appreciate your attention. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Kapkot-Reich. That was really outstanding. Um, and also just very uh, personalized in terms of people, the importance of these uh, telehealth, telemedicine appointments and how you can use them, and, and just some ex excellent suggestions and tips in terms of even being sure your internet is connected and all those details, just really helpful. So it's such a great um, resource for people in rural areas and actually throughout the country in all areas. So thank you. I know the questions for you. This is an important topic, so thank you. Um, and our next speaker um, is uh, Ms. Lauren Chatelian. Uh, Ms. Chatelian is an oncology social worker, and she's our Women and Children's Program Manager at Cancer Care. And she'll be discussing Cancer Care's free national programs and services and uh, case management and online support groups. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, uh, Ms. Chatelian. Thank you, Dr. Mesner. As Dr. Mesner mentioned, I'm an oncology social worker at Cancer Care and Cancer Care's Women and Children's Program Manager. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization providing free professional support services and information to help people manage the emotional practical. Our comprehensive services include case management, counseling and support groups, educational workshops, publications, and limited financial assistance. As an oncology social worker at Cancer Care, I provide supportive services to individuals and families impacted by a cancer diagnosis. The Women's Cancer Program aims to be a primary source of support, information, and guidance for women facing cancer and their loved ones. Our goal is to meet women wherever they may be on their cancer journey. In my role, I maintain a clinical concentration in women's cancers and keep current of changing trends and new knowledge that affects the program and delivery of clinical interventions. I coordinate programmatic activities and outreach related to the Women's Cancers Program, and I work with those diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer and their families. Individuals diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer may choose to supplement existing social networks by joining a support group or engaging in counseling, as we've heard today. Many hospitals, treatment centers, and nonprofit organizations offer supportive services. Joining a support group can be a way of connecting with others going through a similar experience who may understand what you encounter throughout diagnosis and treatment. Being a member in a support group can offer the opportunity to speak with others, gather and provide support, as well as obtain information. Finding support through other individuals during this challenging time can be very helpful. 
At this time, Cancer Care offers specific NBC support groups online. The metastatic breast cancer online support groups aim to reduce feelings of loneliness and anxiety, explore new ways of coping, increase feelings of hope and empowerment, provide practical information about treatment and resources, as well as addressing ways to communicate with one's medical team and loved ones. Our online support groups take place using a password-protected message board format and are led by professional oncology social workers who offer support and guidance. Groups are held for 15 weeks at a time and group members must register to join. After completing the registration process on our website, members can participate by posting in the groups 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Individuals may also experience practical and financial concerns throughout one's treatment, especially during these difficult times during COVID-19. Cancer Care's case management services are offered nationally to patients, post-treatment survivors, and caregivers affected by cancer. We offer a short-term strengths-based approach to case management where the social worker will work with the client in connecting them to resources, referrals, and financial assistance. If you are interested in learning more about the support services we offer, I encourage you to call Cancer Care's National Hopeline at 800-813-4673 to speak to one of our oncology social workers. At Cancer Care, our oncology social workers are trained in how a metastatic breast cancer diagnosis impacts an, an individual as well as their loved ones. We are here to offer you support throughout this experience and looking forward to hearing from you. It has been such a pleasure to be a part of this informative program today. Thank you for your attention and the opportunity to speak with you all. I'll now turn our program back to Dr. Mesner. Thank you. Oh. Thank you so much, Ms. Shetalian. That was wonderful, excellent presentation. And now before we take um, our questions from all of you, and I, and I know many of you have already um, posed questions at this point, um, um, so we're going to be sure to take your questions. But before we do that, we just have two more questions, just two polling questions to ask you. So I'm going to read the question. You're going to see it, um, um, those of you who are live streaming it, and I'd like you to just respond. So as a result of this workshop, I am more aware of all the new treatment approaches for metastatic breast cancer. And please answer yes or no. And the final question is, as a result of this workshop, I am better prepared to get the most out of telehealth telemedicine appointments with my doctor. And again, yes or no. And now we're going to return to our presentations and to um, I'm going to ask that all of our speakers be brought on by Michelle if she'd bring all of our speakers on board now and we're going to take questions of which there are many from our participants so we're going to try to take as many of them as possible. Um, we have a number of online questions at this point so I'm going to actually um, well I'm going to ask first Michelle to um, explain to be able to queue up for questions for those of you who don't know how to do that um, so that everybody has a fair um, opportunity to ask a question. Michelle? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. 
Okay. And uh, we have a question from our online participants, and I'm going to start with uh, Dr. Graylow. Um, how often have metastatic patients contracted COVID in the hospital or clinic setting? So that's a great question, and I'm not uh, I'm not I'm not quite sure how to answer that because I'm not sure I've seen any data on that. I'm not sure if you're restricting it to the United States or globally. Um, and uh, at, at our I can tell you at our institution it is zero. Um, I am sure of that. If anybody else on the panel uh, ha has seen some data that might better speak to this question, that would be great if you want to chime in now. This is uh, Erica Mayer. Um, so th I think this is referring to inpatient um, uh, infection. And, you know, one thing with metastatic breast cancer is we try really, really hard to keep people out of the hospital. So we're, we feel pretty lucky that it's, it's – um, not that common that someone actually has to, to go into the hospital. And as we've all been talking about, we've made enormous efforts to keep our cancer centers and our, our inpatient settings as safe and clean as possible. Um, you know, at, at our hospitals in Boston, we've been really fortunate that, that we really have not had patients being treated for breast cancer or honestly other cancers um, getting sick while they're in the hospital. Uh, most of the COVID infection is something that can happen in the community setting. Um, but I'm, I also am not aware of any data that's specifically been presented on this topic. Uh, we do know that people who have a diagnosis of cancer and people getting, in general, cancer treatments might be more uh, at risk of having problems if they were infected with COVID, but um, reassuringly, this actually doesn't seem to be a big problem for breast cancer patients, and the limited data that are available have not suggested that people being treated for breast cancer are at a different or increased risk compared to many others. But, you know, again, the, the, as we sort of let off with at the beginning of the call, all of the safety measures that we all need to be following with masks and distancing and all of that, that's really our, our best bet. Excellent. Thank you. And then another question from one of our online participants, and this would be for Dr. Mayer. Um, are cell searches through blood work or CT scans better indicators or, of status of cancer? How often should tumors be biopsied? Is bone pain from metastasis or drug side effect? So that, a couple of questions. <laughs> yeah. No, that, th those are great questions, and it really gets to, to the larger question of, how do we know how we're doing when we're taking a medicine for breast cancer? And generally, I think of there being three main things we want to be following. Number one, and probably the most important, are scans. And it is important to get routine scans at regular intervals to look radiologically and, and visually to see how are we doing against the cancer. Um, some people like to get CAT scans and perhaps with bone scans. Other people like to get PET scans. Both types of scans are, are excellent to visualize cancer. However, what's really more important is just to get the same kind of scan each time so it's more of an apples-to-apples -apples comparison. Um, the second way that we follow people is how they're feeling and whether there's any new symptoms or changes that could be suggestive of cancer getting better or getting worse. Um, and then the third thing, and probably the lowest priority thing, are some of the blood tests. And, and we do check a test called tumor markers, which sometimes tracks with how the cancer is doing, with the numbers either trending up or trending down. But honestly, those tests are, are notoriously quite inaccurate. Sometimes they cause more anxiety than help. 
And uh, if that's the case, we, we just stop checking. So generally, we like to get scans on a regular basis. And I would say to start, I often start with a, perhaps an every three-month schedule and modulate that based on how someone's doing. And, um, and monitor people in the interim. If somebody has um, a, a their physical exam and their clinical symptoms and their blood work is very favorable, maybe we'll do the scan less often. If there's something coming up in terms of symptoms or blood work that makes us concerned that, that something could be changing, we might pull in the scan date and, and do it a little bit more frequently. So these things change over time. But in general, there is continuous and close monitoring of how somebody's doing and making decisions as to whether we're, we're doing well with treatment, meaning cancer is stable or, or shrinking on the scan, or if it's time to move to something new, is really a decision that involves all of those pieces of information together, not just one single piece. Excellent. And um, thank you so much. And um, a question for Dr. Cathcott Rake. Um, what precautions does one take when the household members have to go to work outside and you have metastatic breast cancer? How can one be safe at home? Could you address that in a general way, Dr. Cathcat Rake? Yeah, gosh, such a such a good question, and um, would certainly it's it's important. There's a lot of nuance there in terms of where where someone's going to work and that kind of thing. So important to touch talk to your um, individual uh, provider about about the specifics of your situation. I think in general, um, if somebody's in the household with you. Um, you know, I think just having, you know, anytime they go out, if they're going to work, that they take the, the best precautions that they can, knowing that they're going to come home and, um, and and be around you. And so having them, um, you know, wash their hands um, frequently at work, you know, frequently clean their workstation um, and uh, wear their mask consistently at work, I think is the most important thing. And then, you know, when they come home, certainly um, clean, you know, clean, wash their hands really, really good, um, sometimes even um, changing clothes depending on what their occupation is um, in order to, to, to keep um, you as safe as possible is really important. And I think it's just, it's always hard to know, again, the, the risk, it just depends a lot on kind of the, um, the specifics of their work environment and, um, and that kind of thing, but uh, definitely important to discuss with your doctor, depending also based on what treatment you're on, because it may be if your um, level of immunosuppression is is pretty mild, then then um, though you still want to, them to follow those really strict precautions, um, but your risk is a little bit lower. Um, so just just touch base with your provider about the specifics there. Excellent. Um, and um, question for. Dr. Graylow, um, are cell searches through blood work or CT scans better indicated as a status of cancer? How often should tumors be biopsied? Is bone pain from metastasis or drug side effect? So um, can you repeat the first part of that? I wasn't quite sure I got So are cell searches through blood work or CT scans better indicated as of status of cancer? Okay. Um, so a cell search would uh, 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 be the name of one particular type of assay, liquid biopsy. Um, so I think the general question was, is it better to be looking in the blood or looking at CT scans? And I really think it 
uh, depends entirely on the situation, uh, where the cancer is, what's going on. I think that scans like CAT scans, CT scans, um, are very objective. You can measure the size of the tumor. Um, CT scans aren't great for the bones, though, because the size that you see in the bone is many times more about what's the damage that's been done, but you don't know if it's healed in or, or not. So um, CT scans don't work so well for bone when it's the primary site, but PET scans and bone scans might be more helpful. Um, I think what the blood work uh, really tells us about is I would never use factors in the blood to decide that a patient's tumor is progressing or to change therapy. I would want it confirmed with imaging of some sort, with radiology of some sort, to understand where it's progressing. I think the benefit of uh, evaluating either tumor cells or the tumor's DNA or RNA uh, in the blood is um, is probably at this point in time more about what are the changes, the differences in the cancer that are going on. So it's a good question. Um, and um, part of the problem is sometimes we find circulating tumor cells and we can't see any disease anyplace else. And um, that might mean that it's microscopic, that we will see it at some point, but it also might mean that those are just cells that are circulating around that can't land again and grow again. So I think we have more work to do on the liquid biopsy piece or the blood work piece um, before we understand how best to use it, but it's very exciting and a lot of that work is going on. So thank you. Thanks. And um, this will probably be our last question um, uh, for Dr. Um, actually, there's one more question. I'm sorry. But this is a question for Dr. Mayer. I take a Finitor, and it seems to be causing an elevation in my HDL and overall cholesterol count. Should I explore medications like a statin to decrease this? Does it work the same as cholesterol elevation in people not taking a Finitor? Hmm. Well, it, it, thanks. That, that's an interesting question. Um, uh, I personally haven't seen changes in cholesterol profile while people take Afinitor, but certainly um, when people take medicines, and Afinitor is a, a relatively newer medicine that's also called Everolimus, it's possible that uh, something like that could happen. Um, you know, in, in general, if somebody is taking a medication and it's found that um, taking the medicine leads to a side effect that really has become very bothersome, dangerous, or intolerable. The solution is often to adjust the dose of the medicine, and sometimes at a slightly lower dose, we can hit a good balance between maintaining efficacy of the medicine but minimizing any potential side effects or toxicity. Um, so that, that's a strategy that, that we often use. And, and for the most part, changing dose of the medicine is not thought to have a substantial um, decrement in how much benefit we get from the medicine. In many ways, it's better to um, be able to stay on the drug even at a slightly lower dose than stay at too high a dose where it makes someone feel sick. Now, um, having a, a, a mild change in the um, lipid profile, while that may be um, a, a problem if somebody is has that change in their lipid profile for uh, like their whole life, um, whether it's a, a problem if somebody has that change for uh, 
less than that for a shorter period of time, then um, uh, then I think it's debatable whether a change in the dose of the medicine needs to happen. So uh, I, I think I would encourage this person to speak to their doctor about whether the change that's seen is something that looks worrisome or dangerous or something that, that could be addressed perhaps through diet or other strategies. Um, certainly more conversation with the doctor would be great. Excellent. Thank you. And a question from Ms. Chatelian, um about uh, the online support groups. Uh, um, one of our participants is asking about how to join one of the um, metastatic support groups, the breast cancer support groups, if you could comment on that and just the support services available. Yes, absolutely. So the um, online support group program, um, I can give a, a very brief walkthrough. Um, if you go to our website, um, you will notice on the first tab on the side, it says our services, the third option down support groups. And you can actually see all the support groups that are available. So um, online support groups are national. And if you view those groups, we have several options, um, really some, some awesome um, supportive options. And there's a specific group, metastatic breast cancer patient support group. And that will take you through the registration process. Um, if you take a look below at the live support groups, those Offerings are um, in New York, New Jersey area um, for, for some video support groups. So if you're in the area and that's of interest to you, um, please feel free to call our Hopeline and our social workers can share more information about that. Excellent. Thank you. Well, I have to say I want to thank all of our speakers. This has been a phenomenal call. Um, we, uh, we, I, I, we could go on another half hour at least, but I realized we had said this would be an hour program, and so I'm um, keeping uh, the time for, to be aware of, of you, all of your time. Um, I just wanted to thank you all. Um, I, um, I also just want to uh, remind all of you that Many of our speakers have said this, that the questions and concerns that you've raised today, we want you to take those back to your treating healthcare team. Of course, they know you the best, and they can, in what you've learned today, we want you to take that back to your treating healthcare team. Uh, hopefully, we'll ask more informed questions. We'll feel more confident asking your questions. And you've heard from our speakers how open they are to questions from you. That they, and there's a whole healthcare team to address any concern you have. And that is something to keep in mind. So whether we have a medical question, an emotional, practical, financial, any question that you may have, your healthcare team will be able to connect you. We also have mentioned services that are available from Cancer Care, and those you can access as well. They're free. Um, but we do want you to work with your healthcare team always because they, again, know you the very best. But there are services out there, and we want you to take advantage of them as well. Most importantly, as we conclude the call today, I would not want any one of you to feel that you're alone. I want you to know that you're now part of a whole community of support, lots of people to help you. I know that many of you feel alone, and feel alone, in, and that's a normal feeling to have, and particularly now with, of course, um, you know, uh, the people feeling that they need to stay home more or they're kind of not being able to get together with, not be able to get together physically with friends, but really to actually um, 
either on the telephone or on uh, line connecting with people, it's a very normal feeling to have. But we want you to know that you're now, with those moments when you feel that way, know that there are many resources out there for you. And um, if when you speak to your healthcare team, if you call Cancer Care, any other support organization, they will help to connect you to many other resources, and you will find a resource that works for you and meets your needs. That's the most important, I hope that's an important takeaway that you all have on today's program. So I want to thank you all for your participation today. I want to thank our speakers. I want to thank all of you who queued up and asked such wonderful questions that enhanced our call today. And I just want to wish you all um, just all very well and, and take good care. And um, uh, and uh, have a have a good day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.